the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Welcome along to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is episode 230. I'm Paul Spain. I'm Bill Bennett. And I'm Bryce Boland. Welcome along, guys. Great to have you here. Bryce, maybe you can fill us in on uh, where you fit into the technology community since it's your, your first time on the podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me here, Paul. So uh, I'm Bryce Boland. I'm the APAC CTO for FireEye. I'm actually based in Singapore, but I'm originally from New Zealand. And FireEye is one of the leading companies in the world in detecting advanced threats and helping companies to protect themselves from them. Right, well a little bit later on we'll dive into some discussion around security and the sort of threats that FireEye is involved in. And Bill? I write about technology for a living. Great, we will jump straight in. Now first up Bill, one that I wanted to quiz you on, you were at a particular event for uh, Amazon last week. And there are a couple of interesting uh, announcements there that maybe you could uh, share with us. They had a, uh, an event here in Auckland. Yeah, the AWS Summit. It was pretty rah, rah, rah. A lot of the content was very technical and quite deep, but the keynotes were good positioning from Amazon. And the key keynote, if you like, the news, the hot news, was Rod Drury, who wasn't billed as a speaker before the event, turned up, and shortly before he went on, he told me and a couple of other journalists there that was going to announce that Zero is moving from Rackspace to Amazon. Partly to do with cost, but a lot to do with the fact they can get greater speed and velocity out of dealing with Amazon. And that's kind of Amazon's pitch, is that it gives... I mean, Zero is not really a startup anymore, but it gives businesses which are still growing fast, which is definitely the case with Zero. It gives them the flexibility, the, the speed to operate, and so on, that um, you wouldn't otherwise get. So it's, it's quite a compelling sales pitch for Amazon, actually. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I mean, you know, Zero would need more servers than any other uh, New Zealand-based company. I, would, I got uh, the numbers. I think there were five, 756, I think. I, I seem to remember that number for, off the top of my head, but God, that's it's risky. It's, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put any money on that. Anyone. It's uh, yeah. It's a lot. A lot of equipment that they're utilising. So, you know, I guess if you can even make some small adjustments there in terms of you know what it costs to run those systems, then uh, you know that ends up being a lot of money back in their pockets. And a global footprint as well, which is really important for zero, of course. But the emphasis from Rod Drury was very much on how it gave them agility. And he talked about how that speed and agility was really making a difference with them competing with their competitors. I mean, Well, they're, they're a very fast-growing company. They want to be very agile, so they, you know, they, they need to have that flexibility. Yeah, yeah. And, there's, and I think he's... I can't remember, again, I can't remember the exact numbers, but he was talking in terms of Zero making something like two software updates a day to their software and systems whereas their most agile competitor I think managed 10 last year so I mean obviously their, their adjustments would be small and their competitors adjustments would be in effect large rollouts but this, the point is is the agility that that gives you is huge mm. Bryce I mean you must see and monitor lots of things that go on in terms of uh, software development there are obviously uh, risks from a security standpoint there are all sorts of things that happen Zero, you know, updating their software on such a regular basis, more than one update, you know, a, a day currently by the sounds of it. Is that sort of typical that you see that sort of thing out there with uh, newer companies? I guess the traditional software model, we think of the Microsofts and so on, you know, 
the regular updates we see from them are all around security patching and trying to you know solve those you know gaping holes that they have. But I guess when you know when companies are making such regular changes to their software, does that create some challenges? Well, I think what we've been seeing is that the more sophisticated, smaller companies are definitely moving towards a very fast-moving pace of change with their code. And from a security perspective, this has some quite nice benefits. If, if you can change your code regularly, that actually makes it harder for an attacker to develop a successful attack they can use more broadly. Of course, if your changes also happen to open up a door for attack then potentially with a software-as-a-service-based solution, you might be exposing all of your customers' data all at once. Right, so, so there's the, two sides to it. Yeah, yeah. there's two sides yeah. to that. Yeah. So I think on the whole, when you see companies like Google updating Chrome on a very regular basis, this is definitely something that's very positive for security. Right. Now, let's look at something consumer-wise that I thought was a bit of fun that we've come across in the last uh, week or so. And that is the Lily drone. Now, this definitely sounds like uh, a little bit of fun. You know, basically a, a little drone or a unmanned aerial vehicle, as they're uh, often officially called, with a, a full HD camera that can uh, can shoot 60 frames per second, or uh, or you can wind it down to just standard HD, 120 frames per second. Seems like quite a cool little concept, this one, Bill. The we were, we were looking at the video before, and yeah, you can throw this thing up at the air, and then it just flies around. You can set it to follow you or to do a circle around you. I think there'd be a lot of interest in this. Be great for journalists, actually. I was thinking that when I was watching that video. How good would that be if you were on the scene at something? You know, say, oh, say a siege. <laughs> Or anything, really, where there are lines drawn up and you're not supposed to wander over them. I'm, I suppose sooner or later the police are going to shoot down drones when that happens. But And, and um, there, are, there are certainly you know, more and more rules coming into place around drones too, right? Yeah, but for a journalist, it's a wonderful thing. For I was also speaking recently to someone who's a cameraman working with TV, and he was saying what a huge difference that makes to their work, not having to worry about finding cherry pickers and booms and things. Yeah. Um, you know, if you want to get something fast, just chuck a drone up. And the thing, the price of these things is so cheap that they're effectively throwaway. I mean, if you take one out on a job and lose it, that's not the end of the world. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. Bryce, are you a drone fan at all? Have you? Uh... Well, look, I was looking at it too, and I would have thought the obvious use case would be the real estate agents trying to take photos of those houses so they can try to get the prices up even higher with a nice angle on the photo. But uh, I think it's just a matter of time before we start to see these things being used for more hostile purposes, for uh, spying on your, your next-door neighbour or you know, things like this. So, you know, I... I imagine there'll need to be you know rules brought into place as these things become much more common and their surveillance capabilities become you know more insidious yeah i was gonna say the negative side of the journalism thing would be the paparazzi yeah yeah and i mean there's certainly rules in most markets you know in relation to you know drone usage we've got new rules coming out here in in new zealand shortly uh, that prohibit you from yeah basically flying over private property and so on. So yeah, it's going to be uh, it's really going to be curious where these lines get drawn in different countries and you know how maybe some countries are able to develop more in terms of 
IP around you know smart use of, of cameras because all sorts of industry uses of course and in New Zealand you know you think of all the farming that that gets done and you know people driving it's, all over their they, farms they're, they're huge it's already huge in agriculture and it's going to be it's going to become more bigger very fast one of the things that struck me when we were watching that video earlier though is how the whole drone technology is suddenly revolving around that camera function which wasn't immediately apparent when drones first hit the market it wasn't it didn't look like they were going to become flying cameras in effect no and you know they're available from very low cost obviously up to those real you know higher end professional models aren't they and i uh, ordered one of the very low cost ones on ebay a couple of months or so back and uh, I think it's the Cyma X5C. It was about 80 New Zealand dollars. Oh. And uh, I've got a so-called HD camera in it. Now, so far, when I've finally I've been flying around a few times and it runs for six to eight minutes. It doesn't run for very long. But it's definitely a lot of fun to play with it. I went to get the footage off the micro SD and there was actually nothing on there. So um, learn a lesson there around you know what to expect, and I'm sure there'll be some troubleshooting and I'll, I'll figure it out or else uh, this model was cheap because it had a fake camera in it or something so we will see okay i think there's a few areas where we'll probably see drone technology really taking off you know we, we talk about all the industrial uses you know inspections of fences of railway lines of uh, fire trails etc and, and all the agricultural uses but i think one of the things that surprises me is just how much these, this technology is being aimed at people taking photos of themselves. And I just wonder what we're going to call it when we go from stick. a selfie to a droney. I mean, <laughs> are we going to have special labels for that? And, and how are we going to you know, stop people taking dronies of themselves and, and perhaps what they're eating as well? <laughs> and, I mean, from that security standpoint, yeah, that's an area I'm certainly, you know, quite interested in. I mean, obviously, when we look at what drones have become known for initially is for those military purposes well, and well that, you, know, you know. Now, now, now you're walking into dangerous territory because i've got this idea right for just ground to, surface to air drone missiles oh yeah i reckon there's a market for that <laughs> or drone or drone to drone missiles yeah. as well yeah and clearly from a you know if you wanted to build a a, a poor man's cruise missile attaching a bunch of explosives yeah. to a drone with a camera so you can home it in on your target would certainly be you know another cyber terrorist type plot um probably not that difficult today for someone to put something like that together unfortunately yep now it's um yeah it's it's a little bit worrying what the potential is but i guess there's always been the potential for people to do bad things yep. with uh, yeah, things that aren't inherently bad. Um, for those that are interested, uh, have a look. Have a look online. You can pre-order these now. They're not actually shipping until uh, February next year. They've got. They're listing them with a uh, launch price of nine hundred ninety-nine. But uh, pre pre-launch, you can order them. Uh, order them now uh, through for I think the next few weeks uh, through to about mid June for uh, four nine nine US. Uh, so that pr- price point looks looks interesting. Uh, Twenty minute battery life, and uh, yeah, you carry the little disc. They're waterproof as well, so that you know their video shows it dropping into a little bit of water and then then flying out. So, as with any of these these sorts of things, you never know how good the first version of the product will be. But you know, we have seen some good products, uh, you know, launched in this type of manner. So, uh, yeah, it definitely looks like uh, looks like a bit of bit of fun. Is this the sort of thing you'd be lining up for, Bill? I could be, I could be. 
It's uh, it's kind of tempting. Now, one other uh, gadget that has been sitting on my desk the last couple of weeks uh, is Samsung's new 34-inch curved widescreen monitor. Now, we talked about the LG one uh, going back probably a, a couple of a couple of months. Um, and they were, they were the first to bring one of these to market. At, at CES this year, uh, or last year, we saw the, the flat 34-inch widescreen monitors. And what's unique about these is the aspect ratio. So they're very, very long. They're an aspect ratio of 21 to 9. It's almost a pillar box, a uh, so, math box. Yeah, I think it uh, you know, matches up to those very widescreen yeah. you know, movies in the, in the cinema rather than the 16 by 9 we're used to uh, with computer monitors in, in recent years. And it... And it almost is like having two screens in terms of its width. And uh, I am, yeah, very much impressed with this type of format. And, and for me, I think it's just quite a natural natural way to work, and I, I prefer it to the two monitors. Um, side-by-side documents, wonderful. But, um, Bryce, you work that way, don't you? Yeah, I could see it replacing my two-monitor setup for sure. It's. Uh, I think if you're dealing with large spreadsheets or looking at lots of database entries from your latest SQL injection attack uh, <laughs> could be quite a, a, a useful way to look at the data without seeing that split in the middle you normally have. Yeah. And if you really want a lot of screen real estate, you could put one above the other, I'm sure. <laughs> so that just gives you a little bit more. Or super wide for the immersive gaming, you can have two of these side by side. Um, the interesting thing is that most of the newer computers now can drive these natively, even though they're really, you know, it's a, quite a big resolution. They're not quite 4K. Um, horizontal resolution, but um, you know the the, the tiny new uh, MacBook, uh, even the uh, the Surface Three from from Microsoft, which you know isn't a super high end device, uh, but it's they, both of these are quite capable of actually uh, driving it. Just yeah, plug and play works perfectly. So um, yeah, I was I was quite uh, quite pleased with that. Um, now, in New Zealand here, before we sort of dive uh, deep into talking about uh, security dramas and uh, planes being uh, commandeered by uh, uh, security researchers, um, we had the, uh, the High Tech Awards here in New Zealand uh, last week. Now, Bill, Zero, who you mentioned earlier, they were the, uh, the overall winners this year. Why do you think that uh, that the judges sort of picked picked a zero out as the uh, as the um, PwC NZ High Tech Company of the Year? I think it's hard to talk about high tech in New Zealand this year without mentioning zero at some point in the conversation, and I think that reflects that um, the the company's possibly on the cusp of greatness. Um, I mean, I suppose there'd be people certainly Rod inside the company would say it's already great and, it, and in some ways it is but it's it's on that it's on that uh, lift off point I think which means it could go it could be the first major technology company to come out of this country and I don't think any we've ever seen anything as likely to be that it won't be a Microsoft or an Apple because accountancy is a, a bit more of a niche than you know selling computers to everyone or desktops yep. to everyone yeah but it's it's likely to be one of those global scale, or it's, it has the potential to be one of those global scale companies. It's our first shot at this. We've got some others that are coming up behind Zero, but Zero's paving the way for that to happen. 
and, um, and at a scale that you know most of the others aren't uh, you know, aren't likely to be able to get to the same sort of scale as zero would be my yeah. would be my pick from most of the other and ones I've on a at. sort of on a it's not a it's not a negative at all but on a less sort of happy note it's it's quite possible that we won't see them as being a kiwi company for that much longer they'll zero will start to look more like an international um, business i mean it already is international and it'll start to look less like a you know less like one of ours and more like one of those big multinational companies that's out there Bryce, do you do you get much visibility on what Zero are doing from Singapore? Do you do you notice much because they haven't particularly targeted uh, the Asian markets yet with sort of customising their product and so on? But when I talk to people and you know I was chatting to somebody in Philippines recently and uh, yeah he was you know well across Os Zero and, and Vend and you know it's, it seems like our companies are getting noticed internationally. Yeah, I think people are aware of Zero. It's uh, I think early days for them in terms of their international expansion but certainly when I talk to people in New Zealand and Australia they're well familiar with uh, with Zero and, and its offerings uh, I think that there's actually been you know a large number of companies that have done quite well with technology in New Zealand uh, but you're right they, they seem to lose that Kiwi nature at some point as they grow internationally and to be honest I think that's a natural evolution for any company <coughs> as it becomes global and international in nature it needs to adopt uh, different norms of behaviour and uh, hopefully they won't lose that innovative edge which is obviously the key for their success Agreed, yeah um, Now Bill, were there any other ones of the, I mean the, the, there's a list of winners and it's, you know, it's worth having, having a look if, if you're interested uh, and learning a little bit about some of the other ones uh, Network for Learning uh, came, came up um, a, as uh, one of the award winners, uh, and, and funnily enough, they were another one of the companies presenting at AWS as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah the, the thing about I, I don't really want to say too much about network for learning because a I don't know that much, and um, and b um, they they're in that position where they're really sort of running the the. They're running in front of the market for schools getting onto fiber. Yeah. And that's something that's um, happening anyway. So it could be that it could be that their their growth is a function of that rather than their inherent brilliance. I'm not saying it is, I'm just saying I, I don't know. So Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, I know they've been doing some interesting stuff and in, you know, opening up what was initially a network, uh, you know, just targeting the, the uh, teachers and you know education environment and making it more broadly accessible. Well, what I, I what I did great. pick up from uh, from from them is that although it's underpinned by technology, it's not really a technology story. It's really a community story, and it's really about how a community, how you can build a community using technology rather than you know the any particular software or or whatever in the business itself. So. That's that's very much the image I got from talking to people from there. Yep. Now um, another company that came up um, strongly this year, and uh, I think they've they've re uh, rebranded. Um, is Bill? Do you know the pronunciation of? Uh, is it Umudgeon? Oh no! I know they're <laughs> a new one on me. So I so yeah they're. Um, 
they're calling themselves the world's first native app, app publishing platform for designers, and um, you know it, it, it's a platform for uh, yeah building apps without having to actually be cutting code. And we've heard this sort of story before, um, but they won they won two two awards, uh, including uh, what was the one I was thinking of. Uh, I think the the Callahan Innovation Best Technology Solution for the creative sector, uh, and uh, the Duncan Cotterill uh, Innovation Innovative uh, Software Product Award, and uh, yeah, it just seems to be uh, just to be seems to be an interesting story what they're doing, and uh, they seem to have gained you know a lot of attention uh, internationally. Yet it's a name we we haven't heard uh, much of, and looking at uh, some of the names involved there. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm wondering whether uh, this is a company I think that we've heard of before. Um, oh, rebranded that are that are re- rebranded. So, uh, um, do you remember a name called Fingertaps? So we've had uh, David Brebner from uh, from I think Fingertaps in the in the past, and uh, yeah, they they've been. Doing a few things, had some international attention for a for a few years. So I think um, this uh, this this new product is uh, is just is their their uh, latest iteration, shall we say? So uh, yeah. So some interesting things going on there, anyway, in, in terms of uh, um, them building up uh, and, and getting some uh, some pretty quick attention. So. It'll be uh, it'll be fascinating to follow that one, and we we might try and uh, try and get uh, David back on the uh, on the podcast again. One of the things stage. that is worth saying about the High Tech Awards is I think this is the twenty first year that they've been running, and the the awards are now established as the place for you know for showcasing what happens here in New Zealand. Mm. Um, they tend to they tend to favour the um, already successful companies, but that's that's you know that's the nature of these awards. I mean, you don't you don't hear um, unknowns getting Oscars very often, and so on. So it's no, uh, that's true. That's so true. it's it's the nature of the beast, uh, and um, it's a really good thing. To, it's, it's actually good to get out and celebrate what we're doing well here. Yeah, and um, you know, although some of these companies might be you know well known locally, often you know they haven't had a lot of mainstream attention. No. So it's great for giving them that attention. Uh, and you know, we've seen companies that have come through, won an award, and then you know list, listed um, on the stock exchange and, and and so on. You know, afterwards. So you know, I think there are there are some very yeah good aspects to it, and uh, yeah, some of them go on to do extremely well. Internationally, now uh, let's jump into some of these uh, some security topics. So, first up was was the story that I think it, it broke sort of over, over the weekend. Um, Bryce was the the story um, of a United Airlines flight uh, being uh, commandeered by uh, a passenger with a uh, security bent. Who supposedly, uh, you know, hooked himself into uh, one of those in-flight security entertainment system boxes that you know sit under the seats and and so on. And uh, you know, he he gave the story that he was able to uh, um, control the flight to, uh, to to some degree and, and did so as a little bit of a uh, as a test. What's your take on this? I mean, it seems 
just ridiculous from a security standpoint that you possibly you know set up a plane in such a way that someone could uh, could get it that uh, you know so easily you expect you know systems to be quite separate. Yeah, I think most people expect that those USB plugs, if they work at all, are just going to barely give them a trickle of power. Um, but I think the reality these days is that there are a lot of threats to the airline industry from these sorts of attacks. Unfortunately, this one, I feel, has probably been beaten up a bit. In fact, uh, I've seen in other statements that you know, maybe what was uh, what was in the report by the FBI may have been taken out of context. Certainly the researcher claims that uh, that it was taken out of context, and that he hasn't managed to influence the flight of the of that particular. What he has claimed, however, is that he was able to do certain types of attacks based on software that he got from the manufacturers. And while it's plausible that there may be avenues of attack in that way, I think it's highly unlikely that an airline, a commercial airline, would have the in-flight communications in any way connected to the avionics. In fact, I think it's far more likely that attacks of this nature against the avionic systems are likely to take you know, take place with the automated crash avoidance systems and the uh, ground-to-air communication that's used for communicating to the uh, the flight management system. So, you know, those, those what's systems, the what's the risk there with those systems? Well, uh, unfortunately, those systems were designed to be very open and allow. Uh, either the unfettered communication from the ground to the uh, cockpit or to allow uh, planes that are in flight to communicate their location, speed and so forth uh, to avoid collision in, in uh, airspace. Uh, yeah. that, that openness means that those systems are not authenticated, not encrypted and therefore potentially could be, uh, could be attacked. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does seem that there's... There's a lot in the airline industry in terms of technology that is, you know, quite archaic, and you know we've seen that, uh, you know, last year when when a flight, you know, just disappears off the radar and there's no, uh, you know, knowledge of where it is. That well, you know, what's interesting though is that the actual the engines themselves continue to send information about their operation uh, to the engine manufacturers for several hours. So. That, okay. That so there are aspects of, that aren't, aren't so dated. Yeah, there, there's a lot of information uh, flowing in and out of a modern aircraft, and that information is is largely one way. But when people talk about the Internet of Things, yes, it also includes the Internet of Big Flying Things, which are yeah, these true. planes, yep. which are communicating to ground stations, to satellites. For the you know the modern flight communication systems have, uh, in some cases, internet access. You can make SMS and phone calls. Uh, so there are a number of communications both in and out. The challenge, I think, for the you know, the hacker trying to influence the control is they're unlikely to do it through the in-flight communication system. Did he get arrested? Uh, I mean, you can get arrested for making a joke yes. about security. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I would imagine he, I would imagine he was arrested. Yeah, I think he was certainly uh, yeah spoken to uh, by the FBI. Put it that way. Uh, yeah. He was, however, released. So yeah, yeah I, I, I think there's a bit of a beat up here around what he was able to achieve. I, I think you're right. Yeah. 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 That said, anyone who's conducting uh, that kind of potentially security research on a an airborne uh, plane is clearly uh, potentially putting people's lives at risk, and that would certainly be uh, inadvisable. Yeah, I, I, 
can't imagine that would be the sort of thing that uh, yeah you should be playing games with, right? Maybe uh, when the plane's on the ground, you you know you, when you're doing it as you a do paid engagement that's not going to, yeah, in a yeah. controlled environment as part of trying to assess the, uh, the viability of a, a security breach. Certainly, you shouldn't do that where in a situation where you might put people's lives at risk, or worse still, possibly interrupt their watching of a movie. Oh yes, oh well, that would. Well, I mean, there'd be just absolute panic on a flight if uh, if everyone lost their entertainment system. You could sit in your seat and play with your drone. <laughs> Have it follow you out the window. You think, Bill? Yeah. Um, now, uh, Bryce. What's your your take coming back to New Zealand? You know, you've spent the the best part of the last fifteen years, uh, you know, everywhere else in the world other than New Zealand. But you get back reasonably regularly. What's your take on uh, you know how seriously that we we consider uh, you know online cyber security type uh, type threats and so on here in New Zealand? Well, look, I think across the world there's varying levels of awareness and. In my experience across the, the US and sort of the more mature markets in Europe, there's a, a fairly high level of awareness of the level of impact from data theft, uh, much more legislation around data protection and so on. Yeah. My, my experience here and, and across Asia as well is there's a perception that we're less likely to be a target. And part of that in New Zealand, I think, stems from the fact that we are quite isolated here, you know, geographically. Yeah. But as, you know, we've discussed in the past, I'm sure your listeners would would agree, you know, you're only 30 milliseconds away from the next country. And and the reality is, from an attacker perspective, you're literally, you're only 30 milliseconds away from almost anywhere in the world today. And so I think there's a a bit of a disconnect between the the realities and what people think they experience day to day part of that is people recognize the big obvious threats and if you if you see someone standing in the road shooting a gun you, you notice and you take action but in, in cyberspace you know that that person running around shooting a gun is is doing so completely silently you're not going to hear about it people seem to worry about ddos attacks uh and these are really obvious it's clear that something's happening the the subtle attacks, the ones that sub, uh, undermine the security controls and allow attackers to steal all of your sensitive information, all of your email, all of your intellectual property, all of your patents that you're about to file, <laughs> all of that kind of information yep. gets stolen without any noise, without anyone creating something for you to get excited about. And that's the kind of thing that I think most organizations in, in this region and particularly in New Zealand really aren't aware of to the same extent. I, I think also the isolation has given us a false sense of security in the past. I mean, I, when I first came to New Zealand, I heard the story about the Rainbow Warrior attackers um, and how, being French, they thought they were able to go to ground quite easily. But, of course, in a small country like in New Zealand and going up north of Auckland... Where there's you know very few people, yep. Um, yep. two French people touring around stood out, you know, pretty clearly, um, which they probably wouldn't have done in LA or London or wherever. Well, there's you know online, it's just not like that. You know, there aren't little rural backwaters. <laughs> it's it's all as you say, thirty seconds away, thirty milliseconds away from anywhere in the world, and um, and I think that we tend to think in terms of our security. In that, iso- in that sense of that isolation 
and I'm sure in the back of people's minds there's this idea that there's only two lines in you know on the internet and we could just turn that tap off and that we'd all be happy and safe we could pull the moat up well you know it doesn't work like that no no I don't think we'll be doing that any any time soon now uh, Bryce we were chatting earlier about you know some of the you know the the threats and that you know government or or you know national yeah nations uh getting involved in attacks that that's that's quite a significant part of what what you're seeing yeah actually it's quite surprising just how much nation state activity we see against our customers uh historically people have you know thought about spying as something that big nations do to try to understand what their competitors in the in the world are doing preparing for potential war and so on. Uh, what we've seen is that cyberspace has just become another domain for spying. In fact, it's become almost the domain for spying because so much of the interesting information is actually in a computer system. Sure. And so many of the interesting secrets that people try to keep away from others, you can potentially gain access to them via people's computers, by the computers people carry around in their pockets, which they call smartphones. Uh, and there's just so many ways to attack and gain access to those systems. And unfortunately, uh, most organizations today don't even have the ability to detect an attack that takes place. So they're very much unaware of just how much data can be stolen from them. I think I, think I read somewhere a long time ago that th- during the Cold War, a lot of the activity in places like MI5 in London was actually people that could read Russians sitting down and reading Russian newspaper reports about you know, grain harvests and the beetroot crop and so on. Um, and it, they were gathering that kind of information so they could know what was going on with the economy. And probably the vast majority of espionage is economic rather than um, in terms of things like military and so on. Um, doesn't the internet lend itself well to that aspect of yeah, absolutely. So one thing that I found interesting in my role, we, we were tracking quite a number of nation states that have offensive cyber capabilities. And about two years ago, we published a report called World War C, World War Cyber. And it talked about 17 nations that had offensive cyber capability in, in fairly good detail in terms of how much investment they were making, how many people they had in their, their cyber uh, offensive capabilities from a you know, military perspective and so on. And what's really fascinating is that that's exploded out over the last two years. Uh, now we think there's more than 50 nations that have offensive cyber capabilities. And most of them are you know, using it for uh, national intelligence gathering and so forth. Um, but the rules of engagement are quite different between different countries. And some are really actively engaged in you know, pretty much full-scale economic warfare. And, uh, you know... What what would be the sorts of you know, targets that might exist in New Zealand where you know, they might uh, they might get involved in, in that sort of uh, yeah security uh, work? Well, you name it, really. I think we did an analysis uh, last year across a six month period. We looked at twelve hundred organisations, not just in New Zealand but across the world, and ninety seven percent of those organisations had been compromised by malware. That's uh, malicious software that they had been unaware of. And more than a third of those organisations had been targeted by an advanced attack group, which is an extremely high percentage. 
what we see in New Zealand is about 20% of our customers uh, receive an attack, and a, a targeted attack, every month, which is slightly higher than the global average. Uh, it's, it's quite scary, really. And, and actually, if you look across industries, pretty much every industry is targeted. Uh, people usually think, well, banks are where the money are, that's where the criminals go, and that's still true today. But there's also a lot of intelligence about people in all the transactions that you undertake. Uh, wealthy people, uh, obviously potentially politically sensitive and knowing about what they are doing with their money can be interesting. But we also see intelligence agencies trying to gather a lot of intelligence about individuals as part of preparation, potentially for uh, political uh, manipulation or for um, achieving their ends through uh, using you know, social engineering against those people. Um, we also see a lot of attacks that are literally just siphoning up all of the intellectual property and all of the sensitive information from uh, companies, especially since New Zealand has such a great reputation for innovation. Yeah, that would be a bit of a concern for our economy, wouldn't it, if uh, you know, research is being done in university environments and start-ups and, and bigger organisations where you know, millions or billions of dollars get thrown into that research and development if... Uh, Information that they thought was confidential to them, them is being, uh, you know, pulled off into other parts of the world, and uh, you know, we we miss out on the uh, the benefits of those. Now, Bryce, I'm interested to hear what some of these countries are are doing, or what you know about some of the countries. I mean, we were chatting earlier about North Korea, for instance. Yeah, you know, what's known about how they uh, yeah they get they get involved in uh, yeah you know, online attacks and so on. Sure. So I think many of your your listeners may well be aware of Sony Pictures Entertainment and and the attack that took place there. And more than thirty thousand machines wiped. Uh, the release of the interview movie was part of that, uh, trying to prevent that from coming out. And uh, this is just one of many attacks that we've actually seen coming from North Korea. One thing people should really know is there's no such thing as a rogue actor in North Korea. This is a country that has 1,024 IP addresses. Uh, that's less than, you know, less than one for every uh, attacker in their, in their army who's conducting cyber attacks. And we know for a fact that they have between three to 8,000 people in their cyber army, that they regularly hold kind of hackathons against the West uh, in a hotel in Pyongyang and and they're certainly no strangers to developing advanced attacks to conduct against the West. But this is by no means the most sophisticated of the attack groups. We see a lot of attackers uh, from nations around the world. In fact, today we're tracking about 50 countries that have what we'd call advanced cyber offensive capabilities, the ability to use cyber attacks uh, commonly used they use these as part of their national intelligence gathering capabilities. So how worried should we, we be about these here in New Zealand? Well, I think you should be very concerned about them. Uh, like we said, you're only 30 milliseconds away from the rest of the world and, and what we've seen is that the use of cyber attacks has become part of uh, spycraft. It's become part of the tradecraft of how you conduct attacks how you gain information and, and intelligence about what other nations are doing. And it's quite common now for you know, some countries to use this for economic gain, uh, to steal intellectual property as well as to steal sensitive information that might help in trade negotiations, for example. What about manipulating markets? Is that that? 
Uh, I haven't seen this sort of thing happening from a nation-state perspective, but we certainly have seen criminal organisations trying to do a number of things against the markets. We've seen extortion attempts against the major exchanges around the world. In fact, many of them you know, regularly will see, receive extortion attempts. Uh, we've seen extortion attempts recently in New Zealand uh, threatening DDoS attacks. But we also see a lot of attacks that have focused on gaining access to sensitive information, unpublished price-sensitive information, as we call it in the financial services world. This is the information that, if you know it in advance, can allow you to take a position in the market where you can make a significant amount of money. A little and bit like having a lottery number before it's been pulled out of the hat. Sort of, insider sort of trading on a big scale. Yeah, and, and it is essentially insider trading. So there's one group that we reported on late last year. We called them Thin4. And they were specifically targeting the lawyers, the accountants, the CFOs, the CEOs, and the research scientists of uh, biological sciences and pharmaceutical companies specifically to get access to the information that would be market-moving, the results of drug trials, the results of patent disputes, uh, anything that would be market-moving for, for a company. You can imagine last year if you had a successful trial on an Ebola vaccine your company was going to have a, a very marked improvement in its uh, share price. That was the kind of information that was being stolen, hunted for by these attackers. Yeah, I can see that uh, yeah, being a pretty big concern, really. And the, the common ways in which you know networks and so on are being uh, broken into and that, that people are accessing this information? Yeah, and it's actually really straightforward what most of the attackers do. They do some reconnaissance on the target. They try to identify the victims, who they associate with, what their role is, uh, how they communicate, what, what things are of interest to them. And then they will send them a targeted spear phishing email. This is an email that's been crafted specifically for that victim. And they'll use a malware or malicious software attachment or a URL to a, a weaponized uh, website that will exploit that, compu- that person's computer and give remote access and control to the attacker. Uh, We see this happening on a fairly large scale. Um, Some of the organizations that are conducting these attacks have shifts of people whose job it is to look at the victim machines, prioritize which ones they're going to investigate further, and then siphon out the information that they find of value. Uh, So it's very simple that you receive an email, you double-click on an attachment, or you click on a link, and then the next thing that you don't know yep. is that the attacker has actually taken control of your computer. Yeah, so there's, there's no no knowledge. And so this is the sort of thing that FireEye gets involved in in terms of monitoring and reporting on and helping businesses with? Yeah, absolutely. Um, one thing that people assume often is if you see a virus, you see a, a piece of malicious software on your computer, that if you get rid of it, that that's the end of the story. But unfortunately, that's actually not the case. Uh, when an attacker is coming after your company or your your organization, whatever they have done to get in is just the first step. The next step is they try to compromise and steal the credentials that you use, so the usernames and the passwords of your network. Then they try to establish more of a foothold and make sure that they can come back into your network whenever they feel like it. So in many cases, we'll come in to do an investigation of a major breach And we actually find in about 46% of cases last year, there was no malware left behind. And what's really interesting is the attackers had stolen two-factor authentication keys and the usernames and passwords of administrators, 
and they were connecting back in through the VPN, through the remote access infrastructure, looking like legitimate users, and then they clean up after themselves. They get rid of the malware, yeah. so you don't even know that anything's gone wrong. I was at a conference recently where this was talked about. They were talking about the um, the life cycle of uh, an attack. One of the aspects of it, which I think we should ask you about, Bryce, is um, they were talking about sometimes people are inside for a long, long time before they actually do anything. Um, and it's been known for people to be inside 14, 16 months before they actually start getting stuff out or taking action. Have you come across that? Yeah, so commonly we see this sort of behavior where it's a, a nation state and they're just trying to make sure that they can retain access Usually it's part of forward planning for military preparation. With a criminal organization or any kind of economic espionage, usually the target is investigated pretty thoroughly relatively soon after the attack. But what's kind of interesting is what we see in terms of the dwell time of an attacker. Uh, Last year we did an analysis of the 226 investigations we did around the world. And in that we found the average time that the attacker was in the victim network before the victim found out, was 205 days. So more than six months. What's kind of scary is that the longest one we saw last year was 2,900 days. Wow, wow. <laughs> and, and actually that's better than the previous year where it was uh, close to eight years. So the attackers often are able to maintain persistence in the victim network for a very long time, completely undetected, and can potentially siphon off pretty much anything from that organization that's of value well there's a there's a there's a lot to consider there uh, bryce it's quite quite a fascinating discussion i think we could probably go on for hours uh you know chatting through this and and learning about some of the other countries uh that have been involved and and you know hearing some of those stories but unfortunately we're out of time so thanks very much for joining us it's been fascinating now uh is there a place we can track you down online are you on twitter or is the FireEye website the best place to sort of keep up to date with uh, with what's happening from your end well you can find me on twitter i'm bryce boland on twitter or you can reach me at bryce boland at fireeye.com okay that's excellent and bill where do we track you down online um billbennett.co.nz is my website um, I'm all over the media <laughs> and other things and um, Twitter Bill Bennett um, NZ Thank you and you can track us down at uh, NZ Tech Podcast on Twitter or me at Paul Spain on Twitter uh, and uh, you can find out about other, our other podcasts at podcasts.co.nz Hey thanks for everyone for listening we will catch you again next week uh, we have actually uh, uh, a couple of interesting guests over the next couple of weeks, so uh, well, well worth listening into. Uh, but that's it for us this week. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.